Charles Loring Brace believed that there was a way to change the futures of these children. So by removing youngsters from the poverty and the debauchery of the city streets and placing them in morally upright farms and ranches, he thought they would have a chance of escaping a lifetime of suffering. So Charles started this group called the Children Aid Society. And what began was the orphan train movement. I don't know if you ever heard about this. This is so fascinating to me. The orphan train movement. The trains stopped in more than 45 states as well as Canada and Mexico to pick up children and transport them to these farms and ranch homes in the Midwest and the West where they could live for free while they learn how to work. You know how many children records show that Charles and his ministry picked up? Now, I want you to hear this. 250,000 children. God has always been concerned for the orphan. And today around the globe, and particularly in the United States, this is Orphan Sunday weekend, and I'm going to share that all Christians must care for orphans. Now, you heard that, right? All Christians must care for orphans. That each and every one of us have been orphans. And that the church today must help orphans experience the love of God. That's what I'm going to share. That's the three-point outline today. And the Bible consistently pleads the case of the orphan child. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 1. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. That's what we are to do. Now, if you have your Bibles open, I hope you do, James chapter 1. We're going to look at one verse today, and that one verse is verse 27. Here's what it says. Religion, I'm going to actually give you a different word for that. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Now, here's what it looks like that is pure and undefiled. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, let's, let's calibrate for a moment before we even start looking at these three points. Before we even unpack that verse, let's sort of gauge our hearts for just a minute. Is the plight of the orphaned child even on your radar? Is the suffering and the affliction of a, of a fatherless, motherless, or parentless child, is it one of your concerns? Because I think what we're going to learn from this verse and from the other verses I'm going to show you is that it's certainly hugely a concern to God. It is paramountly on God's heart. And it needs to be on ours as well. So here we go. All Christians, number one, must care for orphans. And I'm going to say that again. All Christians must care for orphans. Since the earliest part of human history, there have been children whose parents had died or, or whose parents had abandoned them. Now I want you to, I want you to understand what it was like in Rome in the New Testament era. Because in Rome in New Testament times, a father had absolute power over his family. Now that, to you dads, might sound pretty cool wasn't always a good thing. Listen to this. He could sell his children as slaves if he wanted. He could make them work in his fields in chains. 
This is the reality. Listen, this is the corrective that the Bible does in the Roman era during New Testament times. This is why the gospel is so beautiful. Because against the backdrop of the disrepair of the family, the gospel looks incredibly beautiful. A father could put his child in chains if he wanted. He could punish them any way he liked, even 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 the death penalty. Now, are you hearing that? This is the reality for when James wrote this. When James wrote this, this was the backdrop. The family was in trouble. And listen, the power's authority over the child, it didn't end at 18 years old. Okay, my 18th birthday, I'm free from my dad. It never ended. That was the power of the father in Rome. It gets even worse. In Rome, when a child was born, he or she was placed at his father's feet. And if the father stooped down and lifted up the child, that meant he acknowledged the child, he wanted the child. But if he turned and walked away, it meant he was refusing the child and the child would literally be thrown out of the family. And the, the place that the child would be taken was the Roman Forum. The child would be laid there and people would take care of these babies And then others would come and they would take the babies and the babies would become their property and they were almost always destined for slaves or prostitutes in the brothels. This is the reality of Rome. I don't know what you thought of the family when the New Testament was written, that maybe the family was kind of like ours today. It was nothing, nothing like ours today. In the ancient world, children who were exposed, or meaning children who were left without protection, usually met one of three fates. Ready? Here they are. I hope you remember this. Death, slavery or prostitution, slash prostitution. Here's your third option. Christian adoption. And the historical church has taken up their cause, the, the cause of the orphan child, but the modern church, that would be our church, has waned in their responsibility for the fatherless. Let me take you through a brief history of the church up to modern times, starting even in 110 AD. Writing to the church in Smyrna, 110 AD, Ignatius warned the church. Now you can read this behind me on these screens. Now note well those who hold heretical opinions about the grace of Jesus Christ that came to us. Note how contrary they are to the mind of God. And here's what their lives look like. They had no concern for love, none for the widow, none for the orphan, none for the oppressed, none for the prisoner or or the one released, and none for the hungry or the thirsty. Even in 110 AD, the, ch- the, the church was awakened. It was alert. It was sensitized to the suffering, and particularly the orphan. Well, let's go a little bit forward to the second century, a little bit later. Justin Martyr, he describes very much what we just did. What does a, here it is. What does a Christian worship service look like right after you take communion at the Lord's table? Justin Martyr describes it. The believers had just celebrated the Lord's Supper, and he, he writes, and I quote, And those who are well off and are willing to do so give as much as each desires, and the money thus collected in deposit, in, is deposited with a bishop who takes care of the orphans and the widows. 
and those who are in straits through sickness or any other cause, and those in prison, and our visitors from other parts. In short, he looks after all those who are in need. Listen, this is the church in the first and second century. Listen to this report of a second century church. The falsehood is not found among the Christians, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. Here we go again. The orphan just continually on the minds of the early church. Well, let's go to the 4th century. There's a document that was released in the 4th century called the Apostolic Constitutions. I'm going to read to you a quote. Whenever a Christian youth becomes an orphan, he or she should be adopted, quote, by one of the brethren, for they, for they which do so perform a great work and become fathers to orphans and shall receive the reward of this charity from the Lord God. So even in the fourth century, the church is all about the orphaned child. Well, let's go to the Reformation because the church fell in some really, really, really dark times. Having gone away from the love of Christ, so let's get to the 1500s, the Reformation period. Let's start with Martin, Martin Luther. He had six children with his wife, who, who together with her adopted an additional four children, eventually seven orphaned nieces and nephews. He adopted even them. He had 11 adopted children. Or John Calvin in 1561, who took it upon himself the care and the welfare of several children, whose father, who who was his friend, close friend, who tragically died, he writes, quote, I owe it to the memory of my wonderful friend to love his children as if they were my own. It would be a criminal act if I were to break the trust which has been placed upon me. Well, let's go a little bit more forward. In 1740, you've got George Whitfield. He purchased a five hundred this was an evangelist that literally ushered in the Great Awakening. He purchased a 500-acre plot of land outside Savannah, Georgia, in order to build a house to take care of orphaned boys. And he wrote January 24th, 1740, quote, I called it Bethesda, that is the house of mercy, for I hope many acts of mercy will be shown there, and, and that many will thereby be stirred up to praise the Lord as a God whose mercy endureth forever. Well, let's go to George Mueller of the 19th century, who established a house for orphans. He ministered in his lifetime 10,024 orphaned boys and girls. What about Charles Spurgeon? Probably the greatest preacher other than Christ this planet's ever known. He said to his church in 1866, Dear friends, we are a huge church, and we should be doing more for the Lord in this great city. I want us tonight to ask God to send us some new work. And if we need money to carry it on, let us pray that the means also may be sent. Well, here's what happened a few days later. A woman uh, stating that she had what in today's currency would be several million dollars, 12 or 20,000 pounds in the uh, 1800s, 1866, she said, I want to devote them, quote, to the training and educating of orphaned boys. She gave this money for orphaned boys. So Spurgeon started an orphanage for boys. And in 1879, they opened one for girls as well. Listen, orphaned children have always been on the mind of the true church. But it's not so much on the mind of the modern church. 
So what I want to impress on you beginning in the, the beginning of this sermon is all Christians must care for orphans, and that's been the historical truth all through the existence of God's church. But let me tell you why we've got to care for orphans. We've got to care for orphans because, listen, all of us have been orphans. There's not an exception. We've all been orphans. Now, generally, the neediest people in the time of the early church were, quote, orphans and widows. Look at verse 27 again. James has mentioned these two groups because they're at the very, very bottom of the financial scale. They had no life insurance. They had no welfare programs. They had no Obamacare. What a wonderful era that was. Widows rarely could get jobs. Orphans had no access to inheritance. The inheritance went to the oldest son. Listen, they had no sustenance. And these two groups of people, orphans and widows, were reduced. And listen, if you were an orphan, here's what your life is going to be. You're going to beg. You're going to go to the city's gates and you're going to beg as a little orphan boy or a little orphan girl. And if you're a little orphan girl, you're going to hope and pray every day that you are not snatched up and made the property of some man who's going to use you in a way that you'll never ever want to be used. And your chances of enduring your independence are almost nil because you will almost always be taken into slavery. So now you know what James writes. Now look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their, look at the word, affliction. You see, that word affliction is a word that means to crush or press or squeeze. It's a a crushing pressure. And I can't possibly overstate that. Listen, you have no hope. Hope has been squeezed out of your heart, orphan boy or girl. You have no future that is bright. You have no means of your own to make a living. You live entirely at the mercy of other people. It is a crushing pressure on your life. But notice how verse 27 begins. I want you to see it with me. Religion that is pure and undefiled before who? God, but who? God the Father. There's a reason James puts that name here. That title. He could have just said before God. Listen, he's doing this for a purpose. Nowhere in the Bible do you see a purposeless word. So here we go. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. And he's going to describe what it looks like. Except the word religion in our English is really not the the right translation. So let me retranslate it for you and I'm going to reread it. Worship that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. You want to know what real worship looks like? It's not a 10-piece band with blistering drums and a wailing guitar. We're talking about a life of worship before God. If you want to have a pure and undefiled life of worship before God the Father, well, James is going to show us how to have it. And he says, God the Father, why? Because God has a Father's heart. 
I tell you what, for Carissa, my daughter, I have three boys and a daughter. There is something different. Now, I, I love all my children. They're all getting old, 20, 18, 16, and 9. I'm like, I'm getting old, man. Gray in my beard. Their fault. But listen, there is something different about Carissa than Matthew and Aaron. Andrew wasn't around yet. There was a seven-year gap. Whenever I would see Carissa, my dads, I don't know if you can relate to this, but whenever I would see Carissa, there would be like this flutter that would go through my stomach. I mean, I would just feel it. Like, almost like an anxiety or a nervous flutter that you get when you're really excited about something. But whenever I would see my daughter, it would just go through me. No, no, nothing has brought out my fatherly instincts like my daughter. And God has this father's heart. And it writes, the psalmist did, in, in, uh, in 68, it says, The father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. I want you to hear that again. God is the father of the fatherless. He is the protector of widows. And he performs this protection. He forms this fatherly duty, this fatherly love, this mercy from his habitation, which is heaven, and he oversees it all. There is no orphan child that is not under the purview of God the Father. And if you want to know, well, what are the yardsticks that the New Testament gives us to measure God's love. I mean, can you measure God's love? Well, probably not, but the New, the New Testament does give us two yardsticks to say, you know what, this is how big God's love is. One of them, you can see in 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Here we are, right? I'm going to give you two yardsticks. You want to know how big God's love is? Then really focus on it when you take the Lord's Supper because that's one of the yardsticks. You get to see how big God's love is that he would send his son, his only son, to die for us that we could live. That's exactly what that's about. But that's one yardstick. The other one is this, this doctrine called adoption. This theological doctrine, this truth called adoption. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. You get to see it. Listen, you get to measure God's love, John says, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. You want to know how big God's heart is? Then look at what he does with orphaned children, and that's every one of us. And we become the children of God through what the Bible calls adoption. Adoption by nature is an act of choice. It's not compulsion. It's an expression of free love. God adopts us because he chooses to, not because he's bound out of duty. Listen, God never had to adopt anybody because he was bound to. He chose every single person he brings into his family. And the truth that we are adopted into God's family as sons and daughters, it's the highest privilege and blessing that the gospel offers. Listen, I'm going to say that again because I don't think a lot of people really get this. The truth that God has adopted us and brought us into his family, listen, it is the highest privilege and blessing that the gospel affords. And you might be sitting there going, no, wait a minute. No, salvation is, justification is. Justification is the deepest privilege of the gospel. But if you want to see the loftiest view of love, 
As God brings people into his family, the highest privilege that a sinner saved by grace can have, then it's going to be that you are a brother and a sister and a co-heir with Jesus Christ, with God as your father. Tony Merida said this, the doctrine of adoption is at the very heart of the gospel. Adoption was never plan B. It's always been plan A. It existed before the world existed. And the triune God's involved in adoption. Our Heavenly Father's involved. He's the one that chose to adopt us. And in the first century Greek culture, the Roman culture, parents adopted children in their teens. Did you know that? Did you know that they adopted children, not as babies? They didn't go to an adoption agency where there's 30 babies that they could choose from. They adopted teens. You know why they adopted teens? They wanted to make sure that the young man, usually man, not girl, but the young man was healthy enough to work in their farm fields and a worthy heir for their estate because they're almost always childless. The only ones adopting in Greek culture were childless parents and they would wait till the child's in their teens to prove their worth. But not God. God chose us in Him, Ephesians says, when, now you got to hear this, before He created the earth. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, before He, he laid the foundation of the world. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. That's when adoption took place with God. He decided beforehand to lift us out of our desperate and hopeless estate and place us in his family. And the point of God's redemptive mission, both Old and New Testament, is this, is to adopt people into his family. Well, that's the Heavenly Father, the Holy Spirit. I told you all three are involved in adoption. The Holy Spirit works to help us realize and be empowered by our adoption. This is why Romans says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen, we doubt that sometimes. God, how can you put up with us? I keep sinning. I keep struggling in this. I keep turning away from you. And the Spirit of God is inside you, brother and sister, to confirm you are God's child. He will never leave you or forsake you. He chose you. It's a permanent habitation to be in his family. And God has sent his spirit into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Look what it says, Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Listen, the spirit of God, you know what he's doing? He's living in you. He's living in me. He's teaching us who we are as the children of God. As the Holy Spirit lives within each Christian, he's working to assure you and I that we are God's children. We've got a vast inheritance ahead of us. He's helping us to long for that eternal world of glory where we will be together with God and all of his family together. So the Father chose to adopt us. The Spirit helps us to learn who we are as the children of God. Now listen to this. But adoption was made possible by Jesus, the Son of God. See, Jesus came and he lived as a human being just like us. He lived under the law of God, obeying it perfectly, something that none of us could do. 
For everyone has sinned and turned away from God. All of our good things we thought we'd do, well, in comparison to God's perfect standard of holiness, they're like worthless rags. But not Jesus. He perfectly lived under the law of God, all of it. Obeying it perfectly, dying in our place as the spotless Lamb of God, securing for us salvation. And when you put your faith in Jesus, look what the Bible says in John. He gave the right to become the children of God. Every single person, man, woman, woman or child, who puts their faith in Jesus, God gave the right to become children of God. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Listen, if Jesus didn't do what he did, if he did not die on that cross, if he did not rise from that grave, none of us could ever be called sons of God. We could not have been adopted. Adoption doesn't go through without the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So the Father signs, signed the adoption papers. The Son purchased us by his blood And the Spirit is raising us up as children of God. And when the church cares for orphans, now listen, when the church gets this and begins to care for orphaned children, then we're proclaiming the gospel, the news that the triune God has brought orphaned sons of Adam into his family through Jesus Christ. That's what we're proclaiming to the world. When we care for orphans, Well, I've told you now that that every Christian must be involved in orphan care and that the model itself, the impetus, the motivation is the fact that every single one of us have been adopted. But let me end with this, the third. The church must help orphans experience the love of God. Now, let me just ask you a personal question, and this is rhetorical meaning you just think through it. We have a lot of people in our church that over their lifetimes have been involved in orphan care, whether it's through adopting or foster care or many other ways that you're going to hear about in this rally that we've got coming up to take care of orphans. That is so pleasing to God. I don't know. I I really don't know if you could get much closer to to the heart of God than to take care of widows and orphans in their distress. I think that's what James said. That's worship that is just pure. And someone, I'm not sure who said it, but someone said that adoption isn't, now listen, infertility correction, it is great commission faithfulness. Listen, adoption's not just because you can't have children and this is your way to have kids. Yes, that's part of it, but that's not the overarching motive. The overarching motive is that here is someone that's been like us, cast away from God because of our sin, but here's a child who's cast away from their family because of their family's decisions or circumstances in their lives. And here you come and you grab them and you hold them, you love them, and you teach them about their God. It is the purest form of worship and it's great commission faithfulness. You're teaching them to be disciples who know how to make disciples. We're in that series called The Greatest Job on Earth, right? To make disciples who know how to make disciples. Well, Christians adopting children, foster caring for children, partnering with orphan ministries. Listen, it's one of the greatest ways to make disciples who follow Jesus. 
And God's adoption of us motivates us to care for orphans, which is great commission work. Adoption enables the church, listen, you got to get this, to illustrate the gospel to a lost and abandoned and dying world. Now I'm going to say something that's going to be shocking. So I want you to think through it. I'm going to say two things, ready? God doesn't call every Christian to adopt But he has called every Christian to actively care. Now you ready? Orphan care is a command, not a calling. Orphan care is a command, not a calling. Religion or worship that is pure, verse 27, worship that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's not just a command to those who say, hey, I want to adopt somebody. Or you know what? I think I'm going to get involved in foster care. Or you know what? I think I'm going to go to Children's Home of Easton and and see what I can do to help. It's not just a command for those who are called to orphan care. It's a command to every single Christian. What's that word visit mean? To visit them in their affliction? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction? It means more than just to pop in and and chat now and then. In classical Greek, where this is translated, it often was used to take care or to nurse the sick. This is a commitment to those who cannot help themselves. And it carries the idea of looking over. Visit means to look over, care after, and help in whatever way is needed. You know that there's currently about 160 million orphans in the world. And I want you to get your mind around that. 160 million orphans in the world. That's half the population of the United States. But in the United States, there's more than 400,000 children who live in foster care. Now, some of you actually can because I've worked with a lot of you, but can you imagine living in foster care? Sometimes going house to house. 400,000 children in America living in foster care, and of those 400,000, 120,000 of them are waiting to be adopted. Well, let's narrow it a little bit more. Pennsylvania has 15,000 kids in foster care. Across the river, New Jersey, they've got 7,000 children in foster care. So what can we possibly do with a problem this big? Well, perhaps God is calling you into foster care or even the, the beautiful commitment of adoption. Well, we're hosting a rally. This is November 14th. You see it in your bulletin for you to learn a lot more about those opportunities. I want to invite you to come to that. But listen, how else can you get involved? Well, perhaps consider becoming a prayer partner for a family that has adopted a child or is foster caring. They need prayer. Listen, if you foster cared and if you've adopted, you know how much prayer you need. You know how difficult that is. Or taking a day each week to go into a home who has adopted or is fostering and and helping them do the laundry or babysitting so that the mom and dad can get out on a date because it's probably not happening much. Or helping stock up on cooked meals. Well, you're going to have the opportunity to drink some coffee. You can purchase at this rally on the 14th. 
The beans and the grounds are from Rwanda. The proceeds help orphan ministries. There are so many ways to get involved in orphan care, even more than just adopting, even more than just foster caring. But I want to encourage you to head to our church website. Click on the Orphan Sunday link and then the resources link and you can discover a lot of ways, a lot of ways to get involved in orphan care. Now look at verse 27 again as we close. Worship that is pure and undefiled before God. Now listen, I'm going I'm to tell you what that means. Worship that God says, I love this. This is what I love. Because this is what I'm like. Worship that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. The Father's heart is this. To visit more than drop in and say hello. To care, do whatever you can in your power. To visit orphans and widows in their crushing pressure of life. To keep oneself unstained from the world. That's what God says. That's pure worship. 